The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. This is just part of the whole sequence of events that took place. We know that Jesus had spent some time in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and that his disciples with him had stayed with him as long as they thought they could at least and some of them had fallen asleep and then after Jesus woke and left the garden then uh, Judas Iscariot led the uh, individuals, the mob we could call it he, he led them to Jesus and they took him into custody now the first thing they did when they came upon him and security they took him to the house of Annas who was the father-in-law of the high priest Cephas. Now probably, and this was in the middle of the night, or starting in the middle of the night, they probably took him there to start with so that they could take the time to uh, gather the rest of the members of the Sanhedrin to let them know that Jesus was in custody, that they were going to have a tribunal or a reckoning of him that night and so he went first to the house of Annas and we could just imagine that messengers were sent all over the city of Jerusalem in order to procure all the representatives that should come together to pass judgment on this man called Jesus. The Sanhedrin then was assembled in judgment and in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they put Jesus before that council for his examination and a verdict. Now, they, these, these were men of stature. These were men of reputation. These were dignitaries. These were high officials in that particular state. And the false charges then were laid before them in a probably in a very formal way. False witnesses were called and then a judgment was pronounced. They pronounced Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy because he said that he was the Son of God. When that took place, then everything sort of broke down. And one text says, Matthew, I believe it is, says that uh, when the high priest spoke to Jesus and he responded, a man standing by reached over and slapped him, slapped Jesus. Slap the face of God. That must have emboldened them because after that they, they put a blindfold on him. Perhaps they put a, a hood over him and then the men standing around began to buffet him and slap him themselves and say, prophesy unto us. Who hit you? They were mocking him. These, this was not a, a mob of thugs. This was a, a group of recognized men of authority and prestige. They were public figures. And they held sway over the people. It wasn't something that was taking place in a corner of an alley. It was in a place of prestige and honor and dignity. It was, it was in the court of the high priest. The highest court in the land of Israel, where all the power was vested. 
Jesus didn't respond to their calumnious accusations. Therefore, they assumed that he was not the Christ. He was not a follower of these leaders. Therefore, they assumed that he was a rebel, that he was a, a traitor to their cause. They concluded that he was not above the stature of an ordinary criminal. And so they laid hands on him. They slapped him. He wasn't worthy even of the title of prophet. But they made a critical mistake. Because he did not rise to their challenge to respond to them, therefore he was not worthy in their minds of the respect, but rather should be rejected and punished as a fraud. Now, that mistake has continued to this day. It continues now. Jesus is not given the respect that was, should be accorded him, nor is his father. God does not concede to the test that we put him to, to put a hood over his head and slap him and say, who struck you? God does not concede to that. His son did not concede to that. They do not bow to that point. They were asking Jesus to demonstrate his power and superiority for their own selfish motives. They wanted to know. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you is that they epitomize, they represent the challenge of every unbeliever of every age who, who erect their idols in conflict with the image of God. Their belief in God as revealed in the Bible is challenged. Every age has done it. This was not the first, nor shall it be the last. If this was the beginning of a long history of unbelief. They were in effect saying, who struck you? Tell, tell us, who struck you? Give us some information. They were saying, challenging him like the children of Israel had challenged God through the desert wanderings when they went from Egypt to Canaan. Now, I'm going to take you back to the book of Genesis in chapter 32, not Genesis, Exodus. After God had revealed himself on the Mount Sinai and had revealed his law, while Moses was on the mountain with him for that 40 days, the people decided that maybe God wasn't due their honor and their respect. They said, where is he gone? Where's God gone? Does that sound familiar to you? This current day? Where's God gone? Slap him. Jar him awake. Disrespect him. Where is he? So what they were saying was, where is he? So Aaron said, well, he said, let's do this. Let's get all your earrings and all your gold baubles together. Let's put everything together, your silver and gold. And let's make an image. And they did. And they made an image in defiance of the God of the universe. And Aaron said, here, once he made it, he made an image of a bull. Because that was part of the Osiris, that was part of the imagery that they had when they came out of Egyptian bondage. And Aaron said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, that was a challenge to the deity of God. 
And of course, it, it ended badly for them. They rejected God at that time in favor of their idol, of who they believed would deliver them. You say, well, that's foolish. That's foolishness. Yes, it was. It was foolishness. For them to, to actually build something themselves, it was them, not God, build something themselves and say, this is God, instead of the God of the universe. They shut their eyes and closed their ears to the voice of God, and they went about their way, and for 40 years in the, in the wilderness, they kept turning back and wanting to go back to their idolatry. And when Jesus came, you know what he found? He found a people that were pretty much in the same mold, mold of thinking, wasn't he? Didn't he? He said, you've closed your eyes, and you've shut your ears, you won't see and you won't hear, and you've hardened your heart. Then he further told them in, in Matthew chapter 21, which is a quotation from Psalms 118, that the stone which the builders rejected, he's talking about Jesus, who was a stone cut out of the mountain without hands. He said, the stone which you've rejected is made the chief of the corner. He's the chief cornerstone, but you've rejected him. So what did they do? Well, you see what they did. They finally got down to the point that when they put him before the tribunal, the most honored group of men among them, they slapped him. They actually slapped God in the face. They'd been doing that all along. Modern man has erected his own idol. We have. In the form of human wisdom that challenges not only the existence of God, but the superiority of God. Now it takes various forms. You say, well, maybe it's, maybe it's greed. Maybe it's avarice. Maybe it's being money hungry. Maybe it's, maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's the fun social venues that we erect to ourselves. Basically what I want to talk to you about this morning is that we have an idol among us that has been erected over the last 150 years that challenges every child that we put in our school system as to whether or not God is or we are our own gods. It's called the theory of evolution. It was written by a man, that actually the book was written by a man called The Origin of Species by a man called Charles Darwin over 150 years ago. And it was, it, was, it was met with a great acclaim. Charles Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands and he looked at all the varied biological forms, animal forms, animal and vegetable forms, and he came to the conclusion that God did not create this universe, this world, and this system. He didn't create man. Man evolved. We just evolved. We just came about through various forms of natural processes. And when he published that book, of course, the postulate of that book denies the creative fiat of God. Did God create the heavens and the earth in seven days, or did he not? Now, I'm not going to give you all the argumentation, the, the, uh, the definition as such, and get into the the main structure of evolution, but I'm going to tell you that 
that we have alternatives, obviously, and that there are points to be made that we, we can't be swept up with this because just in the common, ordinary, vernacular understanding of life, we know that the theory of evolution is false. And it's claimed that evolution came about the slow process of creating man instead of the process of God creating man in a day. Okay. What I'm going to do is show you a statement made in the book of Jeremiah chapter 10. And I, w I would like for you to read along with me. I'm just going to, going to read some of it in Jeremiah chapter 10 because it defines how idols are created and it actually is defining how the theory of evolution has been created. Anyway, chapter 10 of Jeremiah verse 1 says, Hear you the word that the Lord spoke unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen. Be not dismayed as at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cuts a tree out of the forest. The work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers. That it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. So he's saying, don't be afraid of the idols. Man made these things. We made these things. We used the axe to cut the wood, and we beat the silver into, into its shape. Don't be afraid of them. We have to carry it about, as a matter of fact. For as much as there is none like unto you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of nations? For to you doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men in the nations, in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So Jeremiah is saying, the idols are nothing, but you are everything, God. But they are altogether brutish and foolish. The stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver spread into plates is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Euphos. The work of the workmen and of the hands of the founder, blue and purple, is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And an everlasting king, at his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall you say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from before from the earth and from under these heavens. You know, he's just Jeremiah is just taking up a, the plain man's view of an idol, isn't he? He's saying, take a look at this. Just from the plain man's view. Where did the idol come from? We carved it out of wood. We did. Where did the idol come from? We took the silver and the gold and plated them together and formed them and over, overlaid all the idol. And then in order for them to get in place, we have to pick them up and carry them about ourselves. So we're saying, take a look. Be smart. It's, it's nonsense. The idol is nonsense. That's what I'm going to tell you about the theory of evolution. It is nonsensical. It really is. Now, I know that our higher institutes of learning are all academic academia is teaching evolution as a fact. But evolution has never arisen to the stature of a fact. It's always been a theory and always will be a theory. 
And it is a theory that has been erected in contradistinction to the Bible account of God and creation. That's what it's for. To divert attention from God to man himself and his ingenuity in crafting this sort of a theory that puts it in juxtaposition to the image of God. Okay. The Bible teaches, just to be plain, the Bible teaches that God, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, teaches that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. Six days and he rested the seventh. Didn't take him seven. Created man in one day. Now that's what the Bible says. Okay. It's not, it doesn't fluctuate on this point. It doesn't go back and forth and say, well, no, I meant to say that the seven days were actually seven periods of time, geological periods of time that could have been billions of years. It doesn't say that at all. It says he created it in seven, in six days, seventh day rested, and man in one day. Now, if God can create, a universe that we can't even get to the edge of, and I don't know what's past that edge if there is such a thing as an edge of the universe. If he can do that, could he in fact create all we see around us in a day, two days, six days? If we believe in God, we believe that he can, and he did. But the theory of evolution tells us, no, he didn't. So you see the challenge it is an idol. It is an idol that that uh, society has placed before us and said, okay, you either believe it happened this way or you believe in God. You can't do both. And that's a fact. Let's take, let's take a, the plain man's view of the theory of evolution. Just the plain man. Just like Jeremiah took the plain man's view of the idol. He said, take a look at this. He didn't go into the theoretical disputes that were going on at that time, he simply laid it out and said, you made this thing yourself. Out of whole cloth, you made it yourself. Now what makes you think it is deity? You see. Okay. We made the theory of evolution ourselves. It has, it has no foundation whatsoever. No foundation whatsoever. It has no practical benefit. The theory of evolution, as taught, does not benefit society in any possible way. It doesn't benefit medicine. It doesn't, it doesn't advance science. It doesn't help society. It's simply a theory of how the world started rather than believing what God said that he created it. So it has no economical, cultural, or societal value except to destroy faith in God. That's what it's for. It's based upon the premise of violence, the uh, survival of the fittest, the con consummation of the weak by the strong. Now that's exactly what uh, Nazism was based on, the survival of the fittest, the elimination of the weaker cultures and ethnic groups, and the elimination of any society that did not meet the same standard of the Nazi regime or the Aryan race. So it's based upon that and from that standpoint alone, I would say that I'm really not 
in favor of it at all. It promotes the transmutation of genes and eventually the transmutation of species. In other words, the, the theory tells you that somehow changes have been made within a species that transmutes and changes the species. For instance, the one most notable is that we're told that, uh, that the uh, man, humanity, human beings, homo sapiens, have been transmuted from, from uh, simians, from apes. From apes, we became humans. There is no missing link. There has not been any missing link. 150 or 160 years of research has not produced a missing link. There's no evidence that this has taken place, no viable evidence that species can transmute. There's no evidence at all for that. So we'd say, okay, it falls flat on, on that particular point. And it suggests, by the way, and some, some people begin to say, well, hasn't, hasn't man changed in some way? Well, there are variants or variables within the human genomes that will change you in some way. As a matter of fact, I, I, my latest research turned this up that as far as species are concerned, distinct species on this earth, there are over one trillion different species. But to find one transmuting, morphing from one species to the next, has never been discovered. And yet there's, there's over a trillion of them that you can examine. And researchers know this. They know this. But they still hold to that theory that maybe we can find one that's trans, transmuting. So what, what that means is that you're turning from a fish into a fowl or from a fowl into a frog or whatever it may be, that you're, you're moving from species to species, and it's never been done. So I'm just saying from a practical man's point of view, as we look at it, we're saying, well, this is, this is what it's based on, but there's no evidence that this happens. And we have seen a lot of times a continuity, a, a chain of continuity that shows from the simple to the complex pictures of, for instance, Eohippus or the horse. They show, Reader's Digest did 30 or 40 years ago, they showed the, the picture of the little horse becoming the big horse and all the horses in between. But the truth of that was, that was just a figment of somebody's imagination. It's never been discovered. We've never seen that before. Yet our kids are told all the time that this is going on, that this happened. But it, it didn't happen, and there's no evidence that it did happen. What's going on is that, that we're erecting an idol to try to replace our belief in God with a belief in a theory that pushes God out of our lives. It depends upon the existence of nascent organs, the existence of nascent organs. You know what a nascent organ is? It's one that is developing, that you're getting, that you've never had before, or the world has never seen before. So they're saying, we're, we're developing nascent organs. Since we're the highest life form, we're looking for something that would help us adapt better to our climate and our culture. But there's no such thing as a nascent organ. There's none. You can't find them. There's no transmutation of a nascent organ. Anytime something transmits or transmutes, from one organism to the next, it's harmful. It's, it's not beneficial. So it doesn't last. 
What they use, what they base their nascent organ argument on is the vestigial organ. The vestigial organ is the one that you're doing away with, that you don't need. And so arguments were made several years ago that your, uh, that your appendix was a vestigial organ. You didn't need it. Lately they found that maybe it's good to have an appendix. Sometimes it goes wrong, goes bad, but it's good to have one. They're talking about the precoccyx tail and things like that. But what they're saying is you have nascent organs that you're getting rid of because they're atrophying. Therefore, evolution is viable. But if you're atrophying organs and not developing them, then that's counterdictive to evolution, don't you see? You're not getting any advantage. You're losing whatever advantage you have. That's, that's called a vestigial organ. And it's, uh, at this point in time, nobody can point to an organ that you have in your human body that is vestigial, really. Okay, atrophy is not the uh, product of evolution. You can lose your sight and you can go blind and you can atrophy a limb or you can lose your hearing and you can be you can promote atrophy by lack of use. But that does not, again, does not produce what we need for evidence for evolution. You follow what I'm saying? They find blind fish at the bottom of the ocean. They did not develop their eyes. Why? They didn't need them. They atrophied them. But we're not finding some evidence of some sort of part of the biological kingdom that's developing something that will help them do better. But the blind fish at the bottom of the ocean are blind because their eyes are atrophied. They don't need them. They can't see, although there's some there that, that can see. So we're, we're, what we're doing is taking a look at the, at the thinking man or the individual's idea or concept of evolution. Mutation is is proven to be harmful rather than helpful, and it's an anomaly. It remains a theory and not a proven fact. You cannot prove the theory of evolution. It's never been proven, it's not going to be proven, and it's not of any value to you. You can't use it in your everyday life. There's no useful use for it except to deny that uh, there is a God. Theistic evolution is a... Uh, crossbreed of the theory of evolution. The Bible says that God created heaven and earth in a, a one-week period. Theistic evolution said, well, we'll compromise on this. We will say that God created the heaven and the earth, but it took him billions of years to get it done. It took him all these years to get it done. What they're saying, basically, is this. The Bible says, and very plainly says, there's no equivocation about it, that God created the heaven and the earth, and that he did it within a week's framework. That's what the Bible says. Theistic evolution says, somebody got that wrong. Somebody got that wrong. So what they're saying, basically, is that, that the prophets, who were the secretaries, God's secretaries, or his amanuenses, that the prophets didn't write it down properly. That God did it, but the prophets got it wrong. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that God spoke unto the fathers by the prophets 
hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. God spoke to man by his prophets. If we say that they got it wrong, what we're saying is that the truth did not prevail. You shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. We're told that the Bible is truth. Thy word is truth, O God. So if the Bible is not true, then we've lost our confidence in what God has had to say. Again, it's a challenge to the primacy of God. It's saying, well, okay, we believe in evolution so strongly that we think maybe the prophets didn't accurately transcribe the information to us. Evolution is designed to demonstrate that there is no grand designer of the universe. It's, it's an anachronism. You cannot use design to prove no design. And that's what evolution does. They try to look back at, and see all the, all the designing elements, the consistency of nature, and try to prove that there is no consistency of nature, which is an anachronism. Okay. We're just talking about the, what the common man knows and what you not, should not get upset about when you think about evolution. If we can't explain it, the evolutionist says, if we can't explain it or replicate it, we can't believe it. We have to, we have to re redo it again. But they can't replicate, they cannot replicate their theory of evolution. It's not demonstrable. Never has been. Cannot see it done. Creation then is supplanted by superstition. And there are other errors that are offshoots of this. And the, one of the basic errors is the postulate that the age of the earth contradicts the Bible account of creation. So we hear these long terms all the time, don't we? This rock is seven and a half billion years old. Or this rock is one billion years old. Or this, this, this particular fissure is three and a half million years ago or 15 billion years so we're hearing all these long long distorted periods of time that make you think well the Bible says it hasn't been that long ago that God did this and it, it actually says that if we calculate all the time that we find in the Bible we're not going to find these long periods of time between us and the creation now the calculations will vary a lot back and forth but what we fail to understand in all of this, what when we're reasoning this, is that uh, we know that uh, researchers have found that rocks, some rocks, have radioactive material in them. Plutonium and, and uh, uranium and so forth, things like this, U-235, and all these different elements. And they've discovered that they have a half-life. It's called the theory of relativity, basically. That there's a period of decay where the, where the actual element loses its life, half of its life in a certain period of time. So they say, okay, this particular rock or element will lose half of its life in 15 billion years. So what they're holding in their hand is a 7.5 billion year old rock or whatever it may be. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that. I wouldn't dispute that. Although there's some real problems that are involved in that, involving the salinity of the ocean. But regardless of that, just for the, for the thinking man's or the, the individual's point of view, 
When we're talking about discovering things that we believe are billions of years old, the beginning of the planet Earth and of all the universe, what we have to think in, in these terms is very simple. When God created the heavens, the earth, and everything, at what stage did he create them? Are you thinking with me? Did he create them fully mature or in a state of infancy? Think about it. When he created Adam and Eve, did he create Adam as an infant in a womb, in a cradle, finally starting to walk? How did he create Adam? He was a full-grown man. And he created him with age. He had age. Which means that if had he gone through the same stages of age, he would have reached that age of perfection that, he, that God created him at a certain time. And he should have gone through all the stages that we go through. From infancy to maturity. Which would mean that he would have baby teeth. What, and baby, you know what baby teeth do? You have 20 of them, by the way, when you're born. End up later with 32 teeth. But your baby teeth reserve space for your major teeth, from your permanent teeth. And they make sure that your jawline is formed perf perfectly and will be capable of holding 32 teeth. They're actually reserving space. Well, Adam had... 32 teeth. He didn't have baby teeth, did he? But had he developed, matured to that point, if you could have caught him when he was three, or three to five years old, he would have had baby teeth, right? But you, you see him when he's full grown. So when we look at the earth and we say, well, how did God create the heavens and the earth? Did he create it? Just as it started, when it had no features to it, nothing, did he, just, did he just begin and say, okay, I'll create everything in its infancy or in its maturity? In all likelihood, we would say maturity. That's why the rocks look like they should have been seven and a half billion years old. But they weren't. They don't. Think about this in terms of what was in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there would be trees. If you had a chainsaw at that time, which you wouldn't have had, but just a regular saw, if you could, and maybe not even a metal saw, but if you could have gotten through that tree and, and uh, trimmed that tree down and dropped it, you would have found rings, seasonal rings. But it did not go through a single season. It was... Mature when God created it. So when we look at all the features of the earth and of all the nature of the rocks and the minerals and so forth on the earth, we have to take a look at it in terms of it being a mature planet rather than an infant planet. And of course that also begs the question about whether or not it was created out of anything. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 2 tells us that God created everything out of that which does not appear. So, 
when you when you hear all these questions about dinosaurs and about uh, radioactivity and about half-life theories and uh, the the uh, radioactive decay of rocks and so forth, you have to think in terms of when did God and what did God do when He created everything? Did He do it without form and feature, or did He put the form and feature in? as we could see it, as nature would have done it had it been allowed to go through. Just like tree rings in a tree, there are seasonal rings that it actually didn't go through the seasons. Okay. What evolution does is it contradicts. It's not a contradiction of science. Science has nothing to do with evolution, by the way. Scientists are not dependent upon evolution in any regard whatsoever. So don't get excited when people are talking about the theory of evolution. It's just a theory. And it has no basis, no, no, no firm foundation. But it does challenge your belief in God. It, it contradicts, it doesn't contradict science because science has nothing to do with it. But that which is disputed is the denial that God created what we now see and know on this earth. And a theory that does that must be resisted that supplants reverence for our God. So, what you're hearing when you hear the theory of evolution is you're hearing a resounding slap in the face of God. In the, on the, what was it, April the 19th, 1775, the first shot, musket ball was sent to start the Revolutionary War that ended up with the United States gaining freedom from Great Britain. And later on, there was a fellow by the name of Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, I think they attribute this statement to him, that that shot that was heard, that first musket ball that sailed out, started the war, that was a shot that was heard around the world. Heard around the world. And when we look back, when Jesus was standing before that tribunal, and that man reached out and slapped Jesus, that was a slap that was heard around the world. And still is. When you slap God, you're going to, you're going to rattle a lot of people. And that's what evolution does. It slaps God. It's a slap in the face of God. I had a chart I want to show you. This one. They blindfolded him. He didn't say anything in, in his defense. And the first guy that hit him was a guy that was a representative of the high priest. He just reached out and slapped him. How indignant is a slap in the face? How disrespectful is that? It was there. And then all those fellows around, when they saw that, they were emboldened. So before he got away, they decided they'd slap him too and say, tell us, if you are the Christ, tell us, who struck you? Who slapped you? Well, of course, Jesus didn't fall for that and didn't do that. He just let them go on. And that's what's going on today. We, we generally don't have a response to those who are teaching the theory of evolution to our children. We just let it go on 
But we sure need to be sure to make sure that we know that this theory is a slap in the face of God and that uh, our children should not be overwhelmed by it, that there are definite answers for that. And then they went on from there. They took Jesus and they went on from there and they put him on the cross. And they began to say things like, uh, if you are the Son of God, come down. Come down on the cross. If you're the Son of God, come on down. If you are the Son of God, physician, heal yourself. If you're the Son of God, heal yourself. If you are the Son of God. So they were saying, if you are, come on down and be with us. Come on down. Get with us. That cry can be explained simply as a demand for God to do it my way. If you are God, do it my way and I'll believe you. If you don't do it my way, I'm, I'm going to have a problem with that. It's often seen when people believe they know more than God about life and eternity. They know more about the record that God has given of himself. And so they, they stand up. We stand up, I should say. We stand up and say, Lord, I will believe you if. We, say, we have all the ifs. If, 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 if. If you're the Son of God, come on. Come on. Come down. We want to reduce him to ourselves. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, he said, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? After that, the wisdom of God, after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God, by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Well, okay. So we, we, uh, we didn't, maybe we didn't slap God. But on the other hand, when he's on the cross, maybe we're saying, Lord, we're going to make our belief in you conditional. We want you to comport with us. We want you basically to be part of us and to let us go and let us be uh, involved in, in what you're saying and doing and let us sort of make our own way along with you. In the matter of morals, now what I'm bringing up is this. We're living in a society that is completely, completely at odds with God. We really are. We're living in a government. and this is, The government in this country has, has gotten so involved in uh, immorality and profanity that we can all, all hardly believe it. But it's, it's actually a sweeping wave tsunami that came from Europe and the other nations and is finally en engulfing us. And that tsunami says this. It says that uh, we, we want you, God, if we believe in you, we want you to accept our standard of morals. We want you to think like we think. And if you don't, I, I, I'm not sure I'll believe you. And so you, you see all this push for gay parades, the push for, gray, for gay acceptance. What they're saying is we have to accept the, the uh, obscene sexual activities of individuals who are perverting the natural use of the man and the woman. That's what the Bible calls it in Romans chapter 1. So homosexual behavior, we're saying, 
That, that's going to have to be accepted. If, if you want us to serve you, Lord, we're, we're going to have to be, we're going to have to be accepting of all these things, of all the different, all, all the different uh, things that society is pushing off on us. We're going to have to be accepting of abortion on demand. Not just abortion, but abortion on demand. Matter of fact, there are bills before our Congress right now to make the American taxpayer pay for abort not just abortions, necessary medical abortions that saves the child or the parent, but abortions on demand. I just don't want the baby. And there, there are bills before Congress right now that that are going to come before our Supreme Court that will have us paying for those out of our tax dollars. Drug and alcohol use, we, uh, we're trying to establish the fact that this is a sickness. And so culturally, we're, we're saying, well, this is a sickness. It's not really that bad. You can get drunk if you want to, drink a little wine or whatever you may want to do, and you can add to your brain a little bit. But what the Bible says about it is old hat. It's not really current today. Profanity, pornography, the sanctity and endurance of marriage, all of these things. You know, people are living together today. When I was a kid, it wasn't just a kid. The people had to get married before they lived together and had sexual relations together. But that's sort of like old hat to people. It's old stuff to people. But the Bible says that's wrong. That's fornication. That's adultery. These, these are terms that we have to find, that we do find in God's Word. But the people are wanting it. If you are the Son of God, come on down here. Come down here. There was a fellow by the name of Robespierre. You may have heard of him. Maybe not. Maximilian Robespierre. He died when he was 36 years old at the French guillotine. Head was cut off. He was, he was involved in French politics for a long time, especially in the 1790s. Robespierre was a uh, part of the revolution, revolutionary thinking, and it was kind of hard to figure out which side he was on. He was, uh, he was prominent during the time of Louis XVI. Anyway, there was a, there was a, a great uprising, we are told, in Paris. Great uprising. And Robespierre at that time looked down upon the group, upon the fighting, upon what was going on. He said, he said, I've got to get down among the people and find out where they're going because I'm their leader. Well, that's, that's what, we look, what we're looking at now in terms of the multitude. Where is the, where's the multitude of going? Where's the multitude of going? I don't care where they're going. I care what God tells me to go. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. What does the Bible say I must do? The Bible says... Jesus pointed out the greatest commandment that we have. If you love me, keep my commandments. Two things this morning. The theory of evolution slaps the face of Jesus. And it's the slap heard around the world. And the cat calls that went out when Jesus was on the cross, confronting him and saying, If you are the Son of God... Come on down. If you are the Son of God, do it like we think we'll do it. And I might also mention this, that when we're in our prayers to God, we're asking for God's favor to do certain things, 
for us. If He doesn't do what we want Him to do, then what do we do? My brother and sister in Christ, understand this. God is in charge. And whatever He does, it will be best. It will be for the best. Whatever the outcome of anything that's going on in your life, God will take care of you. God help you not to slap Jesus and not to call upon Him to confer and, and, and to agree with what you're doing, but agree with Him and agree that He is the God of heaven and earth. Let's sing that last song.